Warning, the Catholic Man Show contains high levels of manliness. It's simple, really. You either want to grow in virtue and holiness, or you want to be a sissy whiny baby. If you choose to move forward, grab your whiskey glass, because the Catholic Man Show is starting right now. And welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. Adam Minahan here sitting with David Niles in studio, and we have a very special guest. We have actually such a special guest this episode that we are bailing on our routine. We're bailing on our format of the show. And we are, because uh, we have so many questions, and we have so many answers that are going to be brought forth from us from the liturgy guys at the Liturgical Institute, Jesse and Dennis. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this evening. Happy to be here. Absolutely. That's Jesse. That's Dennis. Also known as DMAC. Drinking out of your fine Catholic man show glasses. So thanks for that. Here we go. That's right. All right. It's like, what are you guys drinking? Hello, Dennis. I'm, uh, I'm drinking uh, Guinness Stout. Yeah, look at that dark. Isn't that good? Man show stuff. He's drinking, <laughs> he's drinking flat Coke. Actually, I'm drinking really flat Coke. It's one of my favorite drinks. I open a Coke and leave it in the fridge for a week, and then it's perfect. <laughs> Even so when you go on vacation. Worst. It's the worst. I'm yeah. drinking uh, Lagunitas IPA. Nice. Nice. I like Lagunitas. Everything I've ever had from them is good. Yeah, so uh, typically on the Catholic Man Show, we open review and enjoy a man beverage, highlight a man gear, and have a, a conversation. We, we did not sans the opening... We have we are drinking a little bit of our one of our favorites, Lafroig ten year. Yes. Which is a great scotch to drink it's as it's not one of my favorites. It is my favorite. It is your favorite? I definitely. Think it, definitely. Yeah. It, and it's a it's a perfect one for, for winter time. As I, winter I think is it's, approaching. I think it's apropos for this episode, guys, because if the liturgy by some miracle were to embody one beverage, it would be Lafroig ten year. Thus saith me. So it's just apropos. Okay. Not yeah. <laughs> Do you guys like scotch? Do you drink scotch? I, I'm not a very big scotch fan. I assume you're not. Yeah. I just I'm sad, you know, for the Catholic Mancho. It's a very unmanly thing to say, but I just don't like the taste of most alcohol at all. It's just a cruel fate that God has handed me. But uh, I'll drink it sometimes for the effect, but very rarely for the taste. Never for the taste. <laughs> I drink it for the results. De- Dennis, some crosses are heavier than others, and I will pray for you. <laughs> That's right. I tell my friends, if I'm ever an alcoholic, know that I'm in a really bad way because I really don't like it. <laughs> things are, yeah, really bizarre. Okay, so uh, so we're not we're not sticking to our usual format today because we, like I said, we're with the liturgy guys. Uh, Dave, you and I are both. Uh, Patreon members of uh, the Liturgy Guys. We hey. support the Liturgy Guys. So uh, we're, we're big fans of you guys. We love the Liturgy Guys. Uh, I listen to every, every episode that comes out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're, we're going to try our best not to fanboy too much on <laughs> well, this episode. Adam, one of my claims to fame is that I was the first Patreon supporter. Hey. That's true. That's, That's awesome. True. Thank you. True story. 
So you can go to the patreon.com uh, and what is it? Slash liturgy, guys? Is that uh, what it is? It's just slash liturgy. Patreon.com slash liturgy. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. You, you can go support them. Highly recommend it. We both do. Um, but so. We're also uh, mutual friends of um, Father uh, uh, Grant. Father John Grant. Father John Grant. You guys know him, I think. You've mentioned him oh, at least Grant twice. Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. One of the smartest students we ever had here. <laughs> oh, yes. He's going to... He's going to love that. He's going to giggle. That's <laughs> true. He hears this. He uh, okay, single-handedly so made a feast for St. Martin's Day years ago. He cooked a goose for the whole student body. It was pretty, pretty nice. He's a good guy. Nice. nice. That must have been a big goose. <laughs> it was. It was only like a 24-pound goose. I remember it cost like $112 because it's pretty hard to find a goose at the supermarket. They had to special order it. But he cooked it, roasted special vegetables, all the traditional desserts. He did it all himself. It was really great. Uh, okay, so I'm going to get going here. On they're, they're telling us on Facebook Live, you can follow us on Facebook Live or uh, ask questions via Facebook Live as we go here. Dave's mic isn't working very well on I think, Facebook. I think it might, might be working now. Okay, good deal. Okay, so guys, um, and I, I want to get going on. Let's talk a little bit about the Liturgy uh, Guys podcast before we start bombarding you with questions. And this is going to end up turning into a pun podcast and not a liturgical podcast. Wait, wait. Oh, done. I think before we go there, let, before we go to the podcast, there is a liturgical institute. Right, Mundelein, which has has recently launched a podcast. Correct. So why don't you start with the Institute and then move to the podcast? Okay, well, the Institute was started by Cardinal Francis George, now deceased, in uh, the year 2000, and he thought that the study of liturgy really needed, had to be rooted, needed to be rooted in sacramental theology rather than just the passing political whims of the day. And so we are um, a graduate program, get master's degrees and even up to the doctorate, and summer programs and then other things, publishing and public conferences and workshops. And now we're breaking out into social media videos, podcasts, things like that. So it's a pretty good place to be. Man, who thought of that idea? Yeah, Jesse thought of that great idea. Great idea. Yes. Super great idea. <laughs> so Jesse, how did you come along? You're the pot, you're like the head of we, You're uh, spearheading the podcast, from what I can tell. Yeah, and like before, I don't know how many episodes ago, but when we first found out about you guys, we were like, man, these guys are so much better than us because <laughs> they have a funny guy and they have guys that but, know what they're but, talking yeah, they, about. They actually have smart people. <laughs> yeah, they have smart people and funny guys. We're just kind of halfway funny and halfway know what we're talking about. You guys have it all. Well, thank you very much for your for your compliments, and uh, I really don't do anything contrary to common belief, and I and I think that, you know, we've said this before on our own podcast, but what it came down to was I was sitting at the lunch table and our at the seminary here on campus, and some seminarians were asking Dennis and Chris some questions about the liturgy, and they were just going back and forth and and answering, and it was so dynamic, and I was just like. In my head, I was like, this is a podcast. We just need to go over to the office right now and start it. And Chris still thinks it's a bad idea. Yeah. So. He, he doesn't listen, and he doesn't know what a podcast is, really. He just does what we tell him. So it's pretty good that way. So well, it, sounds, it's, it's, it sounds like, you, Jesse, that you heard them and said, this is now it. that's a podcast. Now that's a podcast. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was Father Dan Steele, who was just a seminarian then, and he asked a question. It got Chris really mad because Chris had taught him the liturgy class, and I guess Father Dan asked a very simple question, and Chris was like, darn it, I taught him that in class. Why doesn't he remember? So he was all hot under the collar, and I just get hot under the collar about liturgical things <laughs> generally. It was so the, literally a simple question because it was about yeah. noble simplicity. The two of us were bombarding him, and then Jesse was like, this is what we need. So <laughs> there it is, three seasons later. We never knew what it would become. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So tell Chris that your most recent episode, people are not bored about it. We're very interested in what, keep going on it. Because I know you guys, are, Chris is worried. Yeah. Because Chris is worried that it was boring. Oh, it's not yes. boring. It's oh, not. the Sarkis Kachilian. Yeah. We've already got emails and I, I have to forward him to all of the emails <laughs> that say, not boring, keep going. Um, no, it's, you know, we, we try to do something different. Um, almost every episode, and we like to do a lot of different things. Sometimes we want to just really crush, crush it on a document. Sometimes we want to walk through a rite. Sometimes we want to talk about a particular person or a pope or a movement or a particular furnishing in the church. And so we want to leave no stone unturned. And one thing we haven't really done is taking a really deep, deep dive into Sacrosanctum Concilium, or, or other documents. We've yeah. talked to them about them, but we really want to be very thorough with them so that our listeners can, can really just get all of the meat of what's there because it's, it is a quintessential document. And people ask us all the right. time, how do you plan your shows? What's your show prep like? And I'm like, uh, our show prep is like, who's ready to talk about what, uh, what are you talking about today? What's coming next? And then we just talk. So we have no show prep. So to actually have several shows in a row about one topic is kind of a new thing for us. And it's also nice because they already know it so well. So and Jesse's good on the spot. He <laughs> well, just starts singing little songs. And your show just, prep is we just make up stuff. Strangely familiar. <laughs> yeah, we're strangely familiar to this. Yes. So why? So the liturgy is so important. Let's think. Let, let's talk about this really quick because we're going to hit a break here pretty quick. But the liturgy is so important. We had twelve at the beginning. We had twelve guys who went out and because of the because they went and and evangelized basically where we are today like these 12 guys are the ones who started everything for us i mean jesus christ and then all the, then he sent them all out but it's because the graces that they received from the liturgy because they they knew so intimately uh communion because they they, they knew so much about the liturgy and, and had such a deep connection with christ with Christ being, you know, incarnate here on earth, that because of the graces that they received and how serious they took the liturgy, the graces they received were able to evangelize the whole world. And so I think that's, you know, I think you can take that and say, that is a, a, a prime reason on why the liturgy is so important, because we had 12 guys who started this whole, you know, who evangelized the whole world, and it was because of the liturgy, it's because of the, the, the love that they had of the liturgy and how serious they took it, that helped them receive the grace to carry out, carry forth. Does that make sense? Yes, no? You it agree? No, that's no? right. And, you know, in the West, we tend to think of the liturgy as the thing that produces something for us, like the Eucharist, and we receive grace from God. And that's true. But if you look at it the other way, as members of the mystical body, if we join ourselves to the headship of Christ, who is in dialogue with God the Father in the life of the Trinity, that's like plugging your computer into the wall. You know, it's not much without that, but if you do, suddenly you're charged up with divine life, and then you can go out to the world because you're actually entering into the membership of the body of Christ, who is receiving from God the Father. And then it comes down to the earth to, to set fire upon the earth. That is excellent. Yeah. we got to take our, our first break. 
We'll be right back. We're here talking with the liturgy guys. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. And welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan. We are joined by two thirds of the liturgy guys. The best two thirds. Yeah, definitely. I was trying to decide if I should make a, a qualitative statement. No, on you don't have to. We're, was with we're us. comfortable doing that. That's fine. <laughs> You're putting us into fractions. But anyway, come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, Carry the one. It, it would take yeah. a long time for me to say it. In decimal format, so you know. <laughs> well, what I've said is, uh, yeah, the three of us are like the Trinity because Chris knows everything, so he's kind of like God the Father. But I'm pretty good at speaking it, so I'm sort of like Christ, and Jesse's the love between the two of us, so he's the Holy Spirit. So together, because <laughs> otherwise we hate each other. But fortunately, Jesse's there to tell I'm jokes. I'm the love child of Dennis and Chris, maybe. I don't yeah, know. I was gonna say, wow. You're the love child. <laughs> Uh, okay, okay, so okay. we're talking about the serious guys. Today. Serious, yeah. This serious is serious questions. Yeah. Serious. This is very serious. This is so serious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have a question. Okay, hold on, hold on. Because uh, we can talk about the liturgy. We can talk about music. We can talk about architecture. Where are we going to start? What I'm going to start. I want to go right to my number one question. Okay. And then I, I will work backwards from there. Okay. Times two. Yeah. Okay. Kay. So, as I'm a regular dude. Uh, with a way above regular wife in hotness, okay? And so I just have a regular family other than that. Um, but we go to Mass and we're regular people. What can I do as a regular person to celebrate the liturgy Domestically? better? Better, like just as me going to Mass. You know, I'm okay. not a priest. I'm just, just you I'm are. there. Okay. You uh, are. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> Uh, but you know what can I do to improve my own celebration of the liturgy? <laughs> All right. Well, hmm. Maybe I wonder you can if they're see frozen. Us. Oh, oh. Maybe you can hear. Can us. you see us? I can hear you. Yes, I can hear you. Praise and worship. Can you hear me? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Is that? Uh, no, I don't know. I didn't hear. We are uh, we struggling just a little bit with their internet said, connection. Yeah. So behave, Jesse. Dennis and Jesse. Earth to Dennis and Jesse. They're actually, right now, they're actually uh, hotspotting their internet connection via Dennis's iPhone. Correct. Which would be probably why uh, they are frozen in the continuum, time continuum of the interwebs. (laughs) I hope this isn't like an actual state of theirs and just a virtual state. That would be terrible to be frozen. Yeah. You know, like they say, oh, hey, oh, you're oh, back. Yay. 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 All right. All right. And they're back. Okay. Let I've me never been so happy to see my own face. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear actually David's question or, or, or not? No, we, we didn't. hung up. It was such, it was such an appalling. Yeah, I was offended. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. I've, I try to do that quite a bit on, on the show actually. Okay. okay what's the so question ask it again? For me, just being a regular person attending Mass, uh, what can I do when I'm, I'm there with my family, I've got my kids, um, 
what can I do to participate in the liturgy? What can I do to elevate my own experience of the liturgy just as a regular person? H- have you tried to be holier? I've tried that. Okay. <laughs> Stop okay, sinning. Then do it. One. Just actually do it. Yeah. Well, this yeah, is what, just do just that. Do it. <laughs> this is my thought. You know, if this really exciting rediscovery of the nature of the liturgy is that we act as Christ. So the priest, the priest is sacramentalizing the headship of Christ, and the people in the pews are the members. That's because of our baptismal priesthood. And a priest gets to offer, and a priest gets to plead. That's the two things priests do. So if you join your heart and your mind and your will and offer yourself and everybody you've been given to take care of, your wife, your kids, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, you say, Father, I am joining my intentions to, as closely as I can to the intentions of Christ, who's at your right hand at the altar in heaven, I want what you are telling him and what he's offering to you to be what I offer you. I give you myself, my spouse, my kids, everything, my sickness, my worries, my fears, my work. I put those on your altar in heaven. And that's the key thing, that you're actually united to the intentions of Christ at the right hand of the Father. Then the rest of it is the outflow of that, standing, kneeling, singing, speaking, all of that. But primarily, you have to become a victim. And that's kind of a crazy thing in our world. We don't like being a victim. But Christ is the victim who gives himself eternally to the Father, and then he gets himself back, so to speak, glorified eternally, just like the resurrection. And so every time we die, and you know, like a grain of wheat, and then we grow again and produce sevenfold, that's what you do liturgically in the interior participation of your mind and heart and will. And then you teach your kids to do that. You know, put yourself on the altar. Put your little brother on the altar. Put your friends on the altar. Put everything on the patent and let the God's angel take that to his altar in heaven. That, to me, is the number one thing that participation really means. And just adding to that, as somebody who has children, I think any time that you can make headway in doing that, especially with your children, you, you get to exponentially grow your participation because the more I can get my daughter Agnes to do that, even though she's only three, I get to participate actively in the liturgy through her as well because of what I've been able to instruct her, but then also because I'm her father. And then she can learn how to put me um, on, on the altar through her as well. And so the, the better we can do that, hmm. the more we exponentially grow our participation in the liturgy. I realize I've never sacrificed you on the altar. I was going to say, because I got the victim thing down. Got, <laughs> every time I go to Mass... <laughs> I, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-month-old. So it's like the victim thing is like <laughs> that's easy. Also, have you guys tried liturgical dancing? Have you tried that one out? No. <laughs> next, next question. <laughs> but see, the truth is, what's the thing that every parent says? Oh, I'm not, I'm not patient with my kids, or I let my kids get to me, or whatever. And that's the thing. If you're transformed by the divine life of the liturgy then little by little you become more patient, you become more like Christ. And that doesn't happen against your will. It only happens if you say, yes, Father, I surrender myself as I am to you. I sacrifice myself. I, I, I let myself die so that I can rise again. And then little by little, coworkers, spouses, kids, neighbors, you become more like Christ and that builds these bonds of love. And that's really what participation means. You're participating in that dialogue between the Father and the Son through the action of the Holy Spirit. And that's finalized and kind of consummated in the Eucharist, where you actually take God into your very self. And so it's not just waiting around for the Eucharist to be confected because of matter and form and the right words of institution, as good as those are. It's actually this interior movement that's then sealed, so to speak, by the reception of the Eucharist at the end. What he said. Amen to that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, ditto. I'll just ditto that. Uh, okay, so I have a, I have a, a actual question ab- about when I see the liturgy happening, and, and it's going to be hard for people who are not watching, but so you have the altar and you have uh, the tabernacle right there. On the right you have uh, w- the priest and the deacons, and then on the left you have the ambo. And as the priest or the deacon is walking past the altar and tabernacle to go to the ambo to either uh, proclaim the gospel or start the homily, at times they reverence the altar before they, like, and in the process of reverencing the altar, they're actually turning their back to the tabernacle, which seems to me, uh, I understand why you reverence the altar, I understand what's happening there, but it seems like that you're reverencing something that's of less than what you should be. You know what I mean? It seems like that you should, if you're if you're doing it and you're reverencing something, you should be reverencing the tabernacle, which is the holies of holies, not uh, the altar. What is that? What happened there? Is that something that always has happened? What's going on? Well, I actually we, know this. Well, we had, we had a question about that a while back, so let's see if Jesse remembers. He's very eager to answer this first, so I'll swoop in afterward. So when the, when the mass starts, the the um, the most important thing in the in the furnishing area is actually the altar because the altar is Christ. So at that point, the tabernacle is not a part of the liturgy; it's surrounding the liturgy, and and the altar becomes the the most important thing because it is Christ. And so that's why the priests come in, they genuflect, and they kiss the altar, and everything is altar. Every you know you're you're not going and incensing the tabernacle. You're incensing the altar because the mm. altar is that point of sacrifice. It is Christ. Right. So now, you genuflect on the way in because you, Christ is there, substantially present in the Blessed Sacrament. But then the liturgical action happens around the altar. And all the documents, as Jesse said, say the altar is Christ because Christ's body was the place where his sacrifice happened. So he was the priest, right? He offered. He was the victim. He was the offering. But he was also the place of that offering. And so we think of the altar as that kind of table-y thing that we have to have to say Mass. But the church's books say it's an image of Christ standing amidst his people. So if you imagine some of those old pictures of, that you see in old books of the priest at the altar and the angels are around in circles, imagine the altar is the architectural rendition of Christ standing there. And so it just takes precedent during the liturgy, but then when the liturgy is over, then the tabernacle would take precedence as the abiding presence of God rather than the active presence in the uh, liturgical action. Okay, so ideally, though, in in an ideal world, instead of cutting across and going in between the tabernacle and altar, would it be better to come around to the front where you're actually bowing to the altar and also bowing, which would be to to the tabernacle? Would that be ideal? Yeah, it's it's a funny question. It's not legislated, I think, because altars and tabernacles were just one for so long. Some of these questions that have come up since Vatican II, it don't really have particular answers. One of our faculty members here thinks that the priest should always stay on the side of the altar where he presides, right? So you wouldn't come around to the other side of the altar to pass it. You would stay on the side where you would normally be. But I don't think that's legislated. That was just his recommendation for what we, what we should do here. Um, but in the liturgical action itself, the altar is primary. Outside of liturgical action, maybe that what you propose would make more sense. But there's no legislation specifically, as far as I know, on that question. It would be how do we reverence, how do we both be most reverential to Christ as in the particular situation that we have? Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad. I'm glad to know that. Yeah, because I did not know that. All right. Well, when we get back, we're going to keep going on this. 
I'm going to win the pun war between Jesse and I. I only have 999 more questions. I'm way punnier. <laughs> We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. Back to the Catholic Command Show. Here today with Jesse and Dennis from the Liturgy Guys. Go check them out. They have a conference every year. What, what's the date for the new conference? Uh, this year it's going to be uh, July 12th through the 14th here in Mundelein, Illinois. It's called Transfigured. It's a liturgy study weekend. So it's actually Friday night through Sunday morning. And we have a bunch of speakers and beautiful liturgies and some fun time too. You know our... Uh Bishop Emeritus, Bishop Edward Slattery, he is a product of Mundelein Seminary. That's right. That's right. He's a priest of Chicago, was he? Yes. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think when he retired, he was one of the few priests, few bishops who would celebrate ad orientum. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's so he was also a big fan of the liturgy and still is. He's not dead. He's here. No. Yeah. So anyway... Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want. I have another question. Okay, okay, I and, will allow it. Okay, good. I will allow it. All right, I want both of you guys. But will we allow it? Is the question. I don't know what you just said, Jesse. You cut out on me. All right. What did you say? I said, "Will we allow right. it?" That's the that's the real question. Oh, I'll allow it. That is actually the real question. It, it, You're right. It, it's less about you and more about them. You're right. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so as uh, so as as dads, we're you know. We're domestic priests. We're not ministerial priests, but we are domestic priests. Priests offer blessings and sacrifices. Uh, how do we cultivate living liturgically in the domestic church? How do we do that on a, on a practical level? Mm. This is Jesse's favorite thing to talk about. Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of the domestic church, and, and uh, just because there's so much richness there. And I would say that I probably know a little bit more about how to do this just from all the things that I have learned at the Liturgical Institute. But what I think it comes down to is the liturgical calendar and progressive solemnity. And what I, what I mean by that is you can live domestically within the liturgical calendar and express that in your domestic church. So when, there's a, when it's the feast day of St. Lawrence, have a barbecue because he's the patron of, of, of barbecue chefs. And, and then tell a bunch of jokes around the dinner table because he's the patron saint of comedians. And these are things you can do, very small things. But I promise you, your children will remember the feast of St. Lawrence because they're like, oh, man, we used to have this huge barbecue every year on the Feast of St. Lawrence, and they will always remember it. Remember the Advent calendars with the little doors that would open and there'd be a piece of chocolate inside or something every day in Advent, you'd open one of those. Imagine if you told your kids in Lent, well, you, you can only have dessert on solemnities or Sundays or something like that, then they'd be looking at the calendars like, when can I have dessert? <laughs> or when can I have a second dessert? Or whatever, however esteemous you want to be. Um, but if they were looking at the calendar and saying, okay, what do I get on a solemnity or a, a, on a feast that I don't get on a regular day? Suddenly, that's the liturgical life coming into your, into your home. Okay. Yeah. That is good, because I'm all about the whole living liturgically thing, you know, doing things on the feast days, but I've never actually thought, oh, 
we got to put that circle calendar up there and teach them how to read it so that they know. Hey, kids they get, know they, when their they birthday is. They know when Halloween is. They know when Christmas is because there's some motivating factor to look forward to those days. I suppose it would take a little effort to make the other days make more sense. Or even their name days or the day they were baptized or something like that. That yeah. suddenly so you have something else to, uh, to look at. What's the uh, solemnity that's always on Friday in Lent? Is it St. Joseph? Saint, uh, oh, always a, on a Friday? Well, they're not always on Fridays because they move with the... Every seven years, they land on a Friday. Okay. St. Well, Patrick often gets... On the Feast of St. Patrick, people want absolution so that they can mm-hmm. eat corned beef. <laughs> but if your name is and Patrick... Drink beer. If your name is Patrick, but that's a, or you go to St. Patrick Church, or your church was dedicated or, on the Feast of St. Patrick... Or your diocese is dedicated yeah. to St. Patrick. Then it's, it's a slam. Yeah, or if yeah. you're in New York. Yeah, yeah, right. If you're in New York and the uh, the uh, the main church. Or the cathedral? cathedral? Yeah. The cathedral, yes, is named after them. Right. Everybody gets... Right. And the cathedral's named for him because the diocese the is named for him. So that's, and you don't even need permission. It's automatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. You, you have to know the hacks to <laughs> you know really work the system. <laughs> Because that's what it's all about. Chris, okay. Chris always I have another gets question, but if you... Go ahead, go ahead. I have plenty of questions, but you're asking good ones. So. Okay, well, I want, I want to talk about the Oran's position, because that seems to be something that a lot of people do not understand. And it seems like I'm looking around, it's like, why are you guys doing this? Let's all hold hand. No, don't hold my hand. Uh, it's like, I, why is the Oran's position important, and why should the lady not be doing it during are you, Mass? Are you asking us to take a position on Oran's? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the Oran's position traditionally is the priestly posture. It actually pre-existed Christianity. You see ancient Roman uh, statues and paintings of priestly offerings with their hands in the Oran's position. And you see uh, biblical phrases, too. You know, they raise their hands to God and so on. So typically, it's the priestly uh, position. And I think for a long time, it was considered the, the position of the ordained priest. Um, but then as people started discovering they had a baptismal priesthood, I think it started creeping into informal instruction that people would get at a conference or from their pastor or something. But the church documents never have um, prescribed that that is the posture or gesture for um, non-ordained priests. So it's not so much that it's forbidden, but it's not told that the lay people do that. And so usually it winds up making the person singular, like I'm the guy or the gal with my hands up because I think I'm you know, cooler than the rest of you or whatever, and it starts to divide the body. So that's kind of the reason that you have particular postures or gestures for anyone is so that the whole body acts as one because every person in the church is, is forming this image of the mystical body. And if they're each doing their own thing, not as membership in the, with the, in the body, then they start breaking apart instead of coming together. And so universality of posture is usually proposed for that reason, and then it's clearly prescribed that that's the gesture of the ordained priest. If you want to pray at home in your bedroom so, at night with your hands raised, there's nothing wrong with that, but liturgically it's not prescribed. I always pray like it's this a, at touch, home. Touchdown Jesus over here. <laughs> anyway, uh, so this I think also kind of bleeds in over the whole holding hands Right. At, you know, during the Our Father. And another mutual friend of ours, Jeremy Priest, uh, who just moved up to Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, he actually gave me an explanation. So I want you to maybe expand on this about why we shouldn't hold hands during the Our Father. And he said, this is the first time I'd ever heard this, and this was just a couple months ago, that 
between the Our Father, the sign of peace, and then, of course, the reception of communion. It's a building, it's three signs that are building in communion. So in the Our Father, we're in communion with our voices. And then at the sign of peace, we're in communion physically, which would be a greater sign of communion. And then, of course, at the reception of the Holy Eucharist, the ultimate communion would be the reception of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I had never put that together about, you know, there's a building, those three things, and they build on in the levels of communion. Is, is there anything else going on there? Hmm. That, well, you know, Jeremy Priest didn't tell me. He's a graduate of our program, and he's probably true. Unlike Father John, who I gave that comment about this <laughs> one of the smartest students we ever had. Jeremy Priest actually is one of the smartest students we've ever had. So I wouldn't be surprised that uh, <laughs> that he formulated. Sorry, Father John, he probably formulated that. I don't know if you read that somewhere. There is no legislation on the posture of people's hands during the Our Father. I mean, it's just not specified. So I think what he says is right, but you would have a hard time finding a footnotable official church uh, source on that. Usually what people say is that the Eucharist is the primary uh, moment of communion um, for all the members of the mystical body, because that's when they're all sharing the same life of Christ. And so anything that tries to replace that or uh, interrupt that is uh, that takes precedent over that is usually not the right thing uh, to be doing. And it, it's, I think it kind of crept in from evangelical uh, worship, uh, where typically they don't have the Eucharist, and so they're looking for this sign of unity in the Our Father prayer, and there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but it, it shouldn't take that kind of precedence over the headship of the mystical body. And, and again, that's the key thing, that the members in the church, together with the priest, form this image of the, of the mystical body, and the, it's the job of the priest to gather the prayers and petitions of the people in, and offer them to the Father. And so that's why the Our Father comes at the end of the uh, most of the prayers of the Mass, because then the Our Father gathers them all up, the priest gives them to God, and then the, God's angel takes them to his altar in heaven. And so if you're acting as if you're your own unified body outside of the head, then some, somehow you're not doing it, uh, that proper formation of the image of the body of Christ. Okay, Dennis, I'm really glad to have you here. <laughs> because, Jesse, uh, thanks. no. <laughs> no Jesse, I'm glad to have you here too, but Dennis, specifically for this question, uh, I love the parish that I go to, but the sanctuary itself is round, mm. and I hate it. I hate it. Uh, it's like the people are looking at each other. You can tell us this very 70s, like, oh, we're all the body of Christ, okay? Yes. Like, the, yeah, the Eucharist, okay, yeah, but us, okay? It's, we're all the Eucharist, you know, and it just drives me crazy. Let's say I found myself on, like, the finance council of the parish. I mean, just hypothetically. (laughs) Hypothetically speaking, we're both on the finance council. (laughs) How can I fix fix this? (laughs) Well, I think the first thing you have to know is what you ought to do, right? So... I, you know, I use the word ontology all the time, as you may know from the podcast, because if you don't know what a thing is at the level of its nature, you don't know what to do with it. And so to think about the church building is an image of the mystical body of Christ. I mean, the scripture is pretty clear. They're speaking of the temple of his body. Paul says, you are God's building, composed of many members. And so the church building, in a sense, is the echo of the actual image of the body of Christ. So if the head is where the belly button should be in the body, then something's not right in the body, because the head is supposed to gather up all the intentions of the body. And so when you see a church in the round and people are looking across each other, then, you know, the toe is looking at the other toe and the hand's looking at the other hand and the head is kind of in the middle of the gut, you know, and it doesn't make sense. 
in this notion that if the people are arranged hierarchically as the bodies arranged hierarchically, then that body together can address God the Father. So put the sanctuary where the head right, is, maybe not where the belly button is. Yes. Where the head is. Where the head goes. Where the head's supposed to be. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to keep going on this when we get back from the break. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan. We are joined by the liturgy guys from somewhere in Chicago, I presume. <laughs> yeah. Undisclosed location. Known as Mundelein. Undisclosed. All right. So you guys are there right now. You're at the office. Yes, we are. 40 miles north of Chicago. Right. Close to Wisconsin, closer to the Cheddar Curtain than to Chicago Probably itself. too close to Wisconsin. Cheddar Curtain? Mm-hmm. That's Wisconsin? That's what it's called? Yeah, it's a crossing the Cheddar Curtain. It's a reference to the old Iron Curtain from the Eastern European days. That's cheesy. Mm-hmm. That was in Wisconsin? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I, we, don't, we don't have much time. I, I, I want to ask more questions. I have more questions. All right. Okay, <laughs> okay so I, I was reading, you know, about the... Okay, so if we're talking about the liturgy, like in the Old Testament with... The sacrificing, if you think about like the old the liturgical priest, like I, I, I'm recently became a hunter. And so after I, after you like, you know, kill a deer, you have to skin, you have to you gut it and everything else. So I'm sitting here thinking like the old liturgical priest, like if they had thousands of bulls and goats and sheep and whatever else that they're sacrificing, uh, that would be exhausting. That would be, that would be like the liturgy would actually be hard work. I mean, it would be very tough. Um, and liturgy is supposed to be hard. Or it's supposed to be like hard work, right? I mean, it... Well, work it, is supposed to be hard. Work is supposed to be hard. And the liturgy is supposed to be... The liturgy is like... Doesn't it mean the work of the people? Or something? Oh, don't get me started. Or maybe does it mean the work done on behalf of the people? Yeah, it actually means both. Um, the word liturgy in Greek used to be any public service that was done on behalf of the people. So garbage collectors, teachers, uh, senators, they were doing liturgy, which is why very often in the Eastern churches they always say divine liturgy or sacred liturgy because they're distinguishing it from other kinds of work done on behalf of the people. Ah, okay. But what we have in our favor is that Christ is the supreme liturgist. So he is at the right hand of God offering perfect sacrifice, so we don't need all these messy thousands of bulls anymore. And even if we mess up, he is the one doing that perfect liturgy. Cardinal Ratzinger talks about this. That This is a good hit if he froze. Cardinal Ratzinger did not, he did not do the power of silence. That was Cardinal Seurat. Correct. That was a joke. Oh. He said, Ratzinger. Oh, I see. You see what I did there? Is that an attempted a pun? That was attempted. Actually, it was it was it was well done. You just didn't receive it well. I don't think that was a pun. That it was, was more just of a, a joke. cheesy joke. Yeah, you just didn't receive it very well. It was not received well. I was, I I did not get it <laughs> until you explained it. That's the thing about. Hey there, hey, they're uh, back. We lost you. Okay. Again, but now we're back. So, 
Okay, the last thing we heard you say was Cardinal Ratzinger, Ratzinger's book. And then you went bl- you went dark, and then I said, no, that was Cardinal Seurat because he did The Power of Silence, not... not it was a not bad... Ratzinger. Ah, got it. Go ahead. ahead. Yeah, so, well, they're both good, uh, good cardinals. Yeah, Cardinal Ratzinger, though, made the point that Christ, because he's the true liturgist, because he's doing it on our behalf, we don't have to worry about it being done imperfectly, but because he became human and because we're members of the mystical body, we are offering it as well but we're not relying on ourselves to do it perfectly. We're joined to his perfect offering and a real participation in what he offers, but, but we don't have to worry about it not being received perfectly by God because Christ is the one offering it. So our job is to manifest it most perfectly on earth so we can drink most deeply from it, but we don't have to worry about it not being a perfect offering, that the God's going to be angry that we didn't offer the right thing or fry us with lightning bolts or make volcanoes erupt or something because we gave a bad uh, offering. So we have that peace of knowing that the perfect offering is being done by Christ, and we get to participate in that liturgically. Okay. Okay, so my question for you is, this something that I struggle with a lot? Uh, you know, I go to Mass, and it's very routine. I've been going to Mass my whole life, and I just find myself uh, zoned, zoning out, you know, um, and even when I go without my kids uh, to a daily Mass early morning or something, uh, it just... I. I forget to really put myself into the mass. I do find it's easier when I'm by myself, but do you have any recommendations or, you know, good uh, best practices for how to get my someone like me into the right frame of mind so that I'm as fully present as I can be? Dude, I don't think anybody can help you. No. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, not to... Sound repetitive, but dive into the liturgical calendar again. Um, you know, we have daily mass here, and you know, I'm scheduled to be reader and sacristan a couple of days of the week. But before I do that, I'm always looking at, you know, is there a special day today? Is something happening today that's different than another day? And at least the way that we do liturgy here at the Liturgical Institute, not only will the music reflect what's actually happening for the theme of that mass, but the readings reflect it. The special prayers will reflect that as well. And so sometimes when you go to the Mass, uh, it's important to look at what's different every week rather than what's the same every week because inevitably there is a theme for every liturgy, and it does change depending on what's happening, if it's a special feast day or memorial or anything like that. Even if it's an ordinary day, there is a special theme for that day. And part of that is, I know it's very hard, it's easy to say, oh, prepare for 10 minutes before you go to Mass in the morning, you know, read the missile. But, you know, if you have a little hand missile, look at the calendar, what day is it? And start thinking about that before you get there. And uh, then when you get there, it's a little easier. You know, Bishop Barron has his homilies on Sundays uh, for the Sunday readings coming up. Sometimes I find if I listen to that on Wednesday when it comes out, then it, it's, instead of hearing it for the first time, uh, the Gospel at Sunday, it's the second time, and then you're a little more uh, able to enter into it. But like everything else, you know, people will make their protein shake and have their right glucose, whatever, before they go to the gym, and they'll have the perfect shoes, and then they'll just walk into Mass and with no preparation. So I think in, to some degree what you bring to it will in many ways uh, help you uh, in terms of what you get out of it. You know, my desk calendar that I have here, because I haven't yet broken into Outlook on my phone for my calendar, it's actually called a liturgical desk calendar, believe it or not. It's a little calendar book. It has the week at a time. It has every day. It has the color of the vestments. It tells you if it's a feast, if it's a 
ordinary day, um, what the liturgical season is, and I need that because we have to plan the liturgies here, but I think that could be useful for anybody, really, when you wake up in the morning, you say, okay, I got that meeting, got to do that, got lunch with so-and-so, oh, and also, such and such is the, the feast of the day. So I was I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to go towards beauty or towards music, and I thought, okay, maybe I'll try to do both and try to squeeze both of them in because we don't have a whole lot of time left. So beautiful music, the important, yeah. yeah so so the, so the importance of music. It, I know there's no such thing as like a, a entrance hymn, a, a you know a, a closing hymn. The importance of music within the liturgy and why we should do it. Or right. why we shouldn't do it at certain times. Well, we just recorded all five of our online certificate classes on music. They'll be coming out in the next, what, month or so, Jesse? The, they'll be out uh, the first uh, Sunday of Advent. Okay. And so what all those Perfect. documents say is that music, unlike the other arts, is inextricably bound up with the text itself. So you have to sing a word at to sing anything, and at Mass you sing liturgical words. And so what you're doing is taking the liturgical words, which could be kind of ho-hum, and presenting them in a way that better sacramentalizes the way that Christ talks to the Father, because the Father and the Son are, have that uni union of love in the Holy Spirit, so they don't just mumble at each other indifferently. They sing, or at least the best analog we have is that they sing to each other because they love each other, and the lover sings is the old uh, famous saying. And the more that singing sounds like the voice of Christ, then the more liturgical it is. The more it sounds like the chaos of the world and the anger of you know heavy metal stuff, the less liturgical it is. So it's not really about what you like, what's modern, what's not. It's about how would you make the sound of Christ and the Father singing love song to each other because the Holy Spirit has united them together. And then what would those words be? Normally it's the words of the Mass, uh, but if you were going to add a hymn, say the beginning or the end, could those words be more like the words of Christ to the Father? Could the sound be more like what that sound might be? And the closer it gets to that, the more appropriate it is for liturgy. The farther it gets from that, the more uh, inappropriate it becomes. And see, that's a much different thing than I like this, or I like that, or I like old, I like new. It's keeping the liturgy as the norm by which everything is judged. Additionally, okay, so, I have to, I have, I, so I have to ask this question. Hold on, Jesse, I have to ask this question because I told people I was going to ask because they asked me this question, <laughs> and I just now remembered. Uh, today, Veterans Day, when we're recording this today, we sing, uh, at the end of Mass, you sing uh, America the Beautiful. Yeah, we sang that today We, say, we sang that at the end of Mass. And that seems to be a tradition, you know, I, I, I see that a lot at a lot of Masses. Originally, my thought was, that's inappropriate for the liturgy, uh, that we shouldn't be singing that. But then I also know that St. Thomas says uh, patriotism is a virtue. But just because it's a virtue, does that necessarily mean that it's okay for it to be sung mm. in Mass? Uh, or is, is, is the mass it, over is at this, that point? Yeah, does, does, <laughs> yeah. It does, doesn't even matter because it's actually over. But okay, so Mike, yeah. but, he says the mass has ended. Uh, yeah. Okay, but let's let, let's use that example in like within the liturgical context within the mass. Is something like that appropriate? Well, I would say that hymn, that song in particular, is very much like a hymn, you know, God shed his grace on thee. It's about America, but it's talking about what God has done for America. So it's a little more like a hymn than, say, the National Anthem or some other patriotic tune. Um, you know, we've talked before on the podcast about how hymns are not really proper to the Mass at all, even Christian, right. exclusively Christian hymns. But if you're going to sing one like that, if you're going to allow a devotional song or a patriotic song to come into the Mass, it does seem that the end of Mass is the place to do it. And again, the more it is about the praise of God, the more liturgically appropriate it is. And so the more um, 
the more it mentions God in the patriotic hymn, the more it would belong there, I guess. So, you know, is it objectively wrong? No. Is it the most precise liturgical thing to sing? Not really either, but we allow a lot of things that support okay. the faith of the people, and I think that would be okay. We're going to continue this conversation briefly here with the liturgy guys. Jesse and Diz, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Uh, get the podcast, subscribe to their podcast, The Liturgy Guys. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. And cheers to Jesus. <laughs> He's going to add two more hours as he takes a <laughs> shot. <laughs> I'm a true extrovert in that sense. So this is like my favorite thing in the world to do. Just so you know what I was going to say. Well, then you... Um, I've, I've been watching uh, the third season of Daredevil on Netflix. and Me too. And I'm, in the, I'm, I'm at like episode 10 right now. Oh, good. So you would have passed this part. There's a scene like in the third or fourth episode where um, he's in the basement of the church and he hears this beautiful chant music and, you know, it's up in the, the nave of the church. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, when has Hollywood ever chosen something like, you know, if they're in a Catholic church, when are they not singing chant music or like a, a like a some type of beautiful music? And even liberal yeah. Hollywood understands what beautiful is. And not only that, but the church itself that they film in is beautiful. When is Hollywood mm -hmm. ever filming any scene? In a, it's supposed to be in a Catholic church. They know what a Catholic church looks like more than even some Catholics do. And it's because they're like, oh, well, we're not going to film this in you know, this church in the round that looks ugly with no stained glass windows. They're like, we want this to look like a church. So it's just funny to me that even like liberal Hollywood knows what like a beautiful church should yeah. look like. Well, they know the effect they want to create. The viewer sees it and understands it immediately, and a lot of churches don't do that. So I don't know why. Of course, they uh, they did have a scene where the local Muslim church that yeah. burned down. I didn't say everything was, was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the priest was letting the local mosque use the sanctuary because the mosque had burned down and uh. he's like well we're just being neighborly it's like look man you can't do that and it uh. <laughs> well done <laughs> well done um okay uh so i have here's a, here's one more question uh this is actually from a guy named who is the mystery man on, on Instagram, he asks, okay. what defines when something is a liturgical part of the Mass as opposed to a local custom? Mm -hmm. Liturgical versus local custom. I, I, don't, I don't know that I would put it quite that way. There's like a universal norm, and then there's a local custom that, that comes in. In fact, when we had Monsignor Dempsey on at the end of Season 2, we asked him that very question, what is a custom? And it's actually a very precise thing. Uh, by canon law, a custom has a certain particular meaning, and it's not just whatever you happen to have been doing for the last five years or, you know, the pastor started 16 years ago and everybody does it. It actually um, has to be um, legal in a sense that it can't be contrary to any uh, universal law. And then there are things called immemorial customs that have been happening for so many centuries that the church just accepts that they continue. And then there are local customs that have permissions, they're called indults, to do things that are outside the norms. So like Spain can wear blue vestments because of their Marian uh, feasts and all that. 
where blue vestments are not part of the universal law. Um, so there actually is a very precise theological and legal meaning of the word custom. And it has to be permitted by the ordinary, it has to be long-standing, it has to have a good reason for being, and it can't contradict any of the norms of higher authority. And um, I guess if you meet all those criteria and it supports the life of the people, the spiritual life of the people, then it, I guess it starts to become a genuine custom, not just Father always did it that way and we still like it because we're the church of what's happening now. Mm. All right, so let me ask you, we were talking one. about this. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that was good. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about this earlier with extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, Who needs them? There, there's nothing. There's nothing extraordinary about them these days, uh, even though the, even though there should be. But um, you know, also there's something about that the liturgy is supposed to have a flow to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what is the solution? I mean, I know for our parish, we have seven deacons. I know that that's the solution. The deacons should be there at Mass to give out communion. I mean, that seems like a pretty easy one anyway, but I, there's also plenty of rural parishes that don't have that luxury. So what, what should be the, the you know, more liturgical answer to the problem of the communion line? Hmm. Well, I, I think... Part of the problem, in my opinion, is the architecture of the church itself. And I think there are some churches that I've been to that are kind of in the round, and then there's lots of little avenues and and canals that go through. And so in order to efficiently uh, do communion, you need to have access to a lot of different areas. And I think that's, that's one thing is that you have like 11 or 12 aisles in one church, um, mm-hmm. probably the other thing is that we just don't need that many people. Um, and, you know, if, if you want to offer both species, um, because you have a, a number of deacons or a number of clergy that are concelebrating, great. Um, but we, you, I would argue that if it takes a little bit longer, it's worth it to show that it's a little more important to have the ordained or those who are, are regular uh, Eucharistic ministers, ordinary Eucharistic ministers. Yeah, I too heard a, uh, a lecture by a bishop once who said that this idea of walking up a line and receiving Eucharist alone, basically, you know, someone's behind you, is not really how the church intends it. That when people used to kneel at the altar rail, it wasn't just they were kneeling, they also had their mom on one side and their dad on the other side, and they were receiving communion as a group with someone on either side of them. He said whether you're standing or kneeling, he thought it was much better for people to line up shoulder to shoulder rather than front to back, and then the priest could go down the line you know, more quickly. It's more uh, efficient that way, yeah. It is, but you know, the, again, symbolically, Christ is feeding... The, oh, we lost them again. Symbolically, Christ is feeding people with his own body and blood, and so the ideal ordinary minister is the priest who's offering uh, as Christ. And then everybody else is some kind of uh, concession. Okay, we're back. We'll we pretend to be like. Oh, there you are. Hey. Right. You have your mom on one side and your dad, your dad on dad the other is. side. Right. So you're not receiving communion by yourself. You're receiving communion with the community, and it makes it a little faster if the priest can go down the line one at a time. But also, it allows the priest to be the one who's symbolizing Christ, who's sacramentalizing Christ, to offer Christ. Christ offers Himself. And that's why he's the ordinary minister, because he's the one who should do it. 
And like you said, if there are deacons around or other priests around, that's possible. But deacons and priests, you know, they're so busy these days, it might be hard to ask seven deacons to come to five masses, you know, every weekend. Um, so the church makes allowances for the practical situations there. Um, but only but there's when also the question of, should you be having five masses every weekend? Very, that's a very valid point. Right, if your church is big and there's only you know 100 people at each one then no but you know if you have a big parish and it seats a thousand but five thousand people come to mass every weekend then you you may need it so yeah. you know back when nobody went to communion in the 40s or 50s or very few did and very rarely it wasn't really an issue and now that we have this greater participation in the eucharist it's it's set up uh, new situations for us and that's why extraordinary ministers are extraordinary it's when they're actually genuinely pastorally necessary it's not just the thing you let mrs jones feel connected to the church let's say you know be, be an extraordinary minister or you know make lemonade for the ladies luncheon you both get active in the church so it's a very different kind of thing extraordinary means if there's an actual good pastoral need for those uh people to take that role so let me ask you this. <laughs> I feel like that's how we, we start every... So, okay, so what about this and this? Because on <laughs> the, same, the, this. Same, the same topic of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, uh, I was, we were talking to a priest about this tonight, and he brought up the catch-22 of, are you really an extraordinary minister when there's a schedule for the month that says who is oh. going to be doing it? Yeah, I think... That, I think Technically, it is, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> there are people who are not the ordinary minister, right? So the ordinary minister would be the ordained. If they're not, whether they're scheduled ahead or not, it doesn't have to be spontaneous minister. It's just extraordinary minister is more of a statement of what they are. You know, people used to call them um, communion ministers or Eucharistic ministers, and that's been really downplayed now to bring up the word extraordinary more often to say that it's not the normal thing. It's not just another ministry like making, you know, donuts or brownies for the bake sale. It's actually an extraordinary situation and has a precise theological Although I am meaning. an extraordinary fryer of donuts. Yeah, I, I'm a big <laughs> proponent of, of letting uh, more, we need more people making donuts and brownies at, after Mass. Absolutely. I'm a proponent of that. Me too. I like both those. <laughs> I can totally get behind that. Uh, hey, let me, ask you, let me ask you guys both this question. Uh, Dave and I, you know, started, the, I think we actually probably started our podcast pretty close to one another. Uh, you guys are in the third season, so probably pretty close, uh, within maybe six months or a year, I don't know. Uh, Dave and I have learned a lot from just being like having this podcast. What are some of the things that you guys have taken away from the podcast, the liturgy guys, that you didn't maybe realize that you were going to see the fruit of? Hmm. Well, certainly, um, I, I'm a big proponent of, just with my job, just trying new ways of marketing the Institute. So, I, I am fully aware that not everybody is going to move to Mundelein, Illinois and earn a degree in liturgy. It's not in the cards for everybody. I, I get that. However, everybody, everybody should know how they can sacrifice themselves in the Mass through the liturgy. And so if I can't get them here on campus, they should at least know this. And so what's the best way to do that? It's to have conversations like this. And I'm a firm believer that the success that we've had on this podcast is due to the fact that people treat liturgy in the Catholic Church the way they treat politics. If you don't know anything about it, you shut your mouth and you don't say anything. So when you're at parties and all that stuff, they, they often say, don't talk about money, politics, and religion. And if you're Catholic, you have to add liturgy to that because it's so polarizing and, and people are so emotional about it. 
But what we've done is we've given a platform for people to learn and listen about the liturgy and then gain a confidence of understanding intellectually and then also to put that into practice that gives them the confidence to both live it out and then talk about it with other people. So that's something that nobody's ever done. And when you create a niche thing like that, whether it's a podcast or a video series or anything, um, and you're the first one to do something like that, it, it can be a really, there can be a lot of really great fruit from that. So not only people that have applied to the Institute because they listen to the podcast, but people come to our Young Adult Liturgy Conference or, or people that uh, they do little small group discussions at their parish because they all listen to an episode and then they gather around and they talk about it. That's stuff we never could foresee, yeah. but it's happening. Well, we've heard from people who said, well, I didn't really know how important the liturgy was. I'm going to join a cloistered convent now where I can celebrate the liturgy True more, story. more fully for the rest of my life. Or someone who went through RCIA and you know, gave a shout out on Facebook that we were part of his process of getting ready to be into, to received into the church. We never saw anything like that coming. And um, I also say I've learned a lot from Chris and Jesse, both, and our guests. You know, Chris has been running a Dawson worship office for a decade and a half. He's had every question. He knows every document. He knows the date of every document. And I've never really had that facility. So hearing Chris talk about those things and then hearing them again when we listen to the podcast has just taught me a whole bunch of things that our little community of this trio, we've all learned from each other. And then I think that's partly why people like the podcast, because we're not just reading a script. We're actually having a discussion and learning from each other. And people kind of get to eavesdrop on that. And it's very um, genuine, I think, and, and spontaneous. So it's fun and it's, it's rewarding for us. And that's, I, I guess, I just never saw that coming. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to say that Chris's absence tonight is just one more strike in the column of possibly not real, maybe artificially intelligent. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Kevin Thornton as well. Yeah. yeah. Chris is tied up in the corner over there. We wouldn't let him on the, uh, on the <laughs> <thing> today. <laughs> well, guys, I just want to thank you for coming. And I also, I just want to thank you for doing your podcast. Yeah. Uh, you are one of the few podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but yours is one of the few that has actually formed me in the way I approach something that is foundational to my life as being Catholic. And so I just really want to say an honest thank you. And so please pass my thanks on to Chris as well. Sure. Uh, because what you're doing really is important and it really it matters to me. Yeah. Uh, and so I know, I know it matters to other people too. Yeah. Oh, good. And thanks I, and for what I you guys that. do too. Yeah, I, I totally echo that, man. Man, I, I don't I don't support a lot of podcasts, um, but and I, I listen to a lot. I'm uh, I'm a firm believer in, in what you guys are doing, and I'm happy to support you. And I tell a lot of people about you, so I ask for them to support you as well. So, and I'm a, I, like we have a podcast that we're trying to get supporters of as well, and so <laughs> I'm still telling yeah. them about yours. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, I, I I really do thank you guys a lot. Great, thank you for having me very much.